Bible, there'd be five of that. 785 of that Bible. I'm going to pronounce the book Habakkuk. Um, if you're not okay with me pronouncing it that way, I'm sorry. Habakkuk, as some people say. I wonder how the, the, um, the, Scots, the Scottish say it, David. How, how do they say it at, uh, there? Do you even know? Is it Habakkuk? Yeah. Yeah. Everyone kind of all over the place with it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, in 1946, Jimmy Stewart played George Bailey. Uh, and George Bailey uh, was about to take his life. And like, how could this movie, where a premise is someone wanting to take his life, become one of the most popular Christmas movies of all time? It's a Wonderful Life. Well, you see that George Bailey in this movie, It's a Wonderful Life, has an existential crisis. He's upset that he feels like life has kind of passed him by. Others have gotten the fame. Um, In his desire to serve others, he's um, at the very bottom. Uh, He's lost his money, and uh, now he's facing arrest on Christmas Eve. And on Christmas Eve, he's decided it's better than I just not be around. It'd be better for my family just to have my insurance money than to have me. And the major kind of premise or twist in this movie, It's a Wonderful Life, is uh, this angel coming and, and showing what life would look like, what the world would look like without George Bailey. You know, I think Jimmy Stewart uh, kind of uh, is... That this thesis of uh, the every man, you know, in America, and he kind of played that in, in his roles. And he kind of has this question that many ask at the time of Christmas, what is my life worth? What is its meaning? What is its purpose? And as George Bailey um, displays that, it, it kind of comes upon us as we watch It's a Wonderful Life. I don't know why uh, this movie is so popular. Eric Kielsch and I were talking about it, that it wasn't very popular when it came out. But because of the reruns, it, it, just, it just, people love it. And people just keep on watching it. It's kind of a tradition for many families to watch It's a Wonderful Life over and over again. But I'm going to make an assessment on why I think it's popular. I think it's popular because uh, the Christmas time can be some of the most hardest times for people. Uh, it can make you do some assessment and evaluation. Uh, when you're around your family, you can kind of compare. How have I done? How does my family look? In giving of gifts or receiving a gift, how much can I actually give? How much money do, do I have? And many times where a lot of movies, uh, Christmas movies seem to be revolving around love, people will ask, Where's my relationships? Do I have someone that's special in my life? Some to be down or Dan at, uh, at Christmas time, but it is a hard time for people. And whether it's not hard for you or not, I hope you would, through this passage this morning, evaluate and assess. Evaluate how do you look at your life? How do you vindicate the contributions you've made to this world? How do you justify 
your existence. I think as we look at this book of Habakkuk, especially chapter 2, the questions that George Bailey asks are some questions that Habakkuk asks and some questions that maybe we should ask too. You might be wondering why from Habakkuk can you get this, especially a hard passage. I encourage you, it's very poetic. Uh, and uh, if you feel like closing your eyes, I like to in the Minor Prophets and just hearing it, sometimes um, orally do that. Um, you can feel free to follow along. It's a longer passage. And hear the poetry of the Minor Prophet of Habakkuk. Habakkuk 2. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaints. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these, peop- all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him! who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant um, of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire, And nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon you. Your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will over, overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities, and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. 
The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. This is the history of your people. I pray, Lord, that we would see ourselves in this story. And we would see the way that we can be justified by you. In your son's name, amen. Habakkuk is a minor prophet. And when I say minor prophet, I don't believe mean it's insignificant or minor. Instead, when it says minor, it means it's shorter. That's why there's minor prophets and major prophets. The major prophets are larger, the minor prophets are shorter. And again, there's nothing minor about this book. In fact, this book is talking about a very troublesome time in the life of Israel. We can see at this point in time, as Habakkuk writes, is that the northern kingdom has already been taken out. The ten tribes have been taken to Assyria, and now all that exists of the people of Israel is Judah, the two tribes of the south. And the southern kingdom at this point has some problems, has some serious troubles. And now Habakkuk is talking about the troubles that he's seeing among Judah. And he's crying out to God in the first chapter about these troubles that he sees. He says, God, do something about the injustice. Do something about the evil. And God responds. And he says, I will do something about the evil. And this is what I'll do. I will send a new nation, Babylon, the Chaldeans, to take out Assyria and then to take out you. To to take the nation of Judah and take its people and take them away to another land. Wow. I didn't get to spend a lot of time at the end of chapter 1, and Allison Umbarger did a good job asking me a question. She was asking me what this whole thing was about um, he bringing them all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. It's talking about this nation of Babylon, the Chaldeans. What they would do is um, they would take um, hooks and pierce them through the bottom of people's lips. And then they would string people together with these hooks and then drag them to Babylon. You can wonder why Habakkuk is a little bit upset at God. This is what you're going to do. This is who you are, that you would take us as a people and drag us out of Judah. What is going on here? And the questions that Habakkuk is asking is one that the people of Israel should be asking, we should be asking in in tough times. How could you allow such things to happen to your people? How can you say you love Israel when now Israel will not exist with the land of itself? It will be taken. Uh, If you want to read a shorter book of Job, read Habakkuk. Okay? Instead of having to read 42 chapters about suffering and what Job faced, now you get to just read three chapters, which is a little bit nicer. That's why Habakkuk is good for us to kind of go over. But I really think Habakkuk is just kind of a, a shorter Job, if you will, talking about this suffering. And I think chapter 1 is this question of, uh, it's about faith being tested. 
But now in chapter 2, what we're going to see is faith being taught. So chapter 1, faith being tested. But here in chapter 2, faith being taught. So let's see, again, this dialogue between Habakkuk the prophet and God about what is being faced and what is happening. Let's look. Chapter 2, verse 1. This is still Habakkuk talking. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Here, Habakkuk is taking um, the position of a prophet. A prophet waits to hear from the Lord, and he uses in a kind of an allegory um, to show that it's like being on top of the tower of um, you know, a city. And uh, people at the watchtower or stationed up there would see what storms are coming, what armies are coming. They would be all the first to see what is happening. And here, this is the position that Habakkuk says he's at waiting upon the Lord to come. How will you come? What will it look like? I will wait to hear what you have to say. And really, it's a position that we see that is part of the Advent season. It's a position of waiting. Um, Advent means arrival, you know, the coming of God. And the prophets have that position of waiting. If you read Luke 1, you see that many people also have those positions of waiting, from Zechariah to Mary to Joseph. All of them have a position of waiting upon the Lord to come. And this position of waiting is not just a position of just sitting and doing nothing. It's a position of longing and being in obedience even when you have to wait. I made that argument last year in Advent, and I'll make it again, that probably some of the most anxious and longing times is not the arrival when it comes, but the waiting for it. And that is when sometimes we do our hardest work in anticipation. Just ask any pregnant woman. You know? That time of waiting. And we see as he waits waiting to respond to God and continue in that dialogue, I will answer concerning my complaint. God responds in verse 2. And he says, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. And when he says, so he may run, it's meaning that he may run with the message, meaning that others would hear it, that as a prophet he would go forth and portray this message. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. And as you see, as God goes about his message, he's saying, I am not lying about myself. I will deliver you. I will save you, Israel. In fact, I will save you and I will save you even from the Chaldeans, the Babylonians that will come in and destroy you. Just wait see that it will happen. God is crazy like this and his responses. Um, It's kind of frustrating as you read this. It says in verse 3, it hastens to the end, right? But then it says afterwards, I mean, it hastens, it's going to be fast. And then if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God, is it supposed to happen fast or slow? What is supposed to happen here? It's, uh, it's kind of those wordings that, uh, the word literally has been used a lot, right, nowadays. My kids use it all the time, actually, literally, you know, like all the time. And uh, I remember 
Ellie being like, I'm literally going to die. Really? You're literally going to die right now. I mean, no, that's not really true. But again, this is confusing me. God, what are you trying to say to me? And I think God is saying, this is how I take it, God's perspective of time is different than ours. Okay? And if you watch Interstellar recently, you realize, you know, uh, there's four dimensions, right? God is outside of time. He has a different perspective. He is not within time. For God, a thousand years is like a year. He can see the full picture when we cannot. Isn't that the magic of It's a Wonderful Life? Isn't that what makes the movie good? Is that there's a perspective that um, George can now see in in the movie? A perspective of what life would look like without him? You know, Job talks about this. It's kind of the message of Job. And again, borrowing from this a little bit. Job, in his frustrations with God and talking to God about the suffering that he faces, he says this in chapter 20. He says, God knows what he is doing with me. God knows what he is doing with me. And here, what God is trying to show Habakkuk There are two ways to go. Do you trust in what I am doing for you? Or are you going to trust in yourself and what you can do for yourself? And I'm going to show you both ways to go. The ways that Israel should go, and now the way that the Chaldeans and the Babylonians have gone. Which way are you going to go? There's another uh, movie that's shown over and over again. Uh, that I, whenever I flip the channels, I kind of I stop on it. It's Shawshank Redemption, okay? I watch that movie all over again. I, I feel like you watch that movie over and again. It's so popular. But Shawshank is, is really good, um, and you can watch it over again because it's a, it's a surprise, right? So I'm going to give it away. It's enough time that I can tell the story, okay? So you have to deal with that, okay? But here's Andy Dufresne. Um, unjustly put in jail. And uh, he has faced beatings in jail. He's faced time in the hole. He's faced injustices being there. He's faced some hard, hard times, and he shouldn't even be there. But you see that he still loves others in that position. He still starts a library. He still makes chess pieces. He still enjoys music. He still enjoys things, even in being in that place. And the movie makes it so you think he's just kind of given up on life. That's the only way that someone can live that kind of carefree way. And then when it gets to the end of the movie um, and they do a check on who comes out of the room, he doesn't come. And the first time I see it, it's like, oh, he's killed himself. It's over. But then, you know, the guard goes in and he's not there and... And then he gets upset, he throws one of his chess pieces against the wall, against the poster, and then instead of it clanking, it it goes through something. And he moves the poster, and there you see the hole, right? And he's escaped. And you see, you look at the movie differently, don't you, when you watch it again? You know, Andy was able to love others and serve others because there was hope. 
his digging for 20 years, there was hope. There will be justice. It will happen. It will occur. There is a way out. Habakkuk, I am doing a mighty thing. A great thing. Don't judge your life by what you see right now. Patience will not puff you up. It will make you very, very humble. It will make you humble. It will shape you. It will mold you. It will allow you to see hope that comes ultimately from me and nothing else. Listen, I'm a sucker for those surprises things on TV where the soldiers come back and see their kids, right? Or uh, recently there was a, a guy on a, the UCLA team that had faced a very hard life, and Dick Buckus gives an award, and uh, he surprised the UCLA team and showed up with the award. I, I don't know, it's just, it's just those mo- you just see it at those moments. And here this kid... He's just college and just buff as all get out. Dick Buck has hands him this award. And why am I getting teary about this? He hands his award, and you see this kid just break down crying. This huge athlete. And in those moments, you see something. And something says, this kid has gone through so much. And at this exact moment, he sees the hope has been actualized. It has been seen. All these things, all this work I've done has paid off. And you can't even hold it anymore. Do you know those moments? Do you know those moments will come? You know, God says, there will come a time where you will live like that in eternity. But do you say, oh, God, it's just not working out. At the moment, I'm not getting what I need from this relationship, from you. I'm not getting what I want from my marriage. You know, forget it. Could God know better than you? Could God know better than you? Let's find out. Verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Here we have the linchpin. Here we have the theme verse of the book of Habakkuk. Some would argue the theme verse of the whole entire Bible. You see this verse used over and over again. The righteous shall live by his faith in Romans, in Galatians, in Hebrews. It's a message if you're in circles like ours, um, Protestants, Reformed people, or whatever you want to call us. It's a key message. Salvation is through faith. It's legal and judicial language. You are justified. You are proved right in your life. You're proved right in court 
by not what you do, but what God has done. You are saved by believing in his work. The famous theologian said, God doth justify the believing man, yet not for the worthiness of his belief, for, for his worthiness who is believed. Faith comes in what we believe in. It's not our faith that saves us, it's the one that we have faith in that saves us. Okay? Yes, that's kind of the central message kind of the Reformation, I think, of the Christian message that God comes to us, He saves us, we cannot save ourselves. But I want to again look at this in the context of Habakkuk looking at this verse. Okay? And I think what it does in verse 4, it gives us a comparison and contrast. As we want to look quickly just to the righteous shall live by faith, it's important to look at the verse before. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. You see what happens is, is that God is showing which way are you going to go. Pride? The way of the Chaldeans? Or are you going to go the way of me? Which way will justify your existence? And the truth is, I am bringing the Chaldean people to you, Israel, to take you down a peg. To make you see that you cannot do it on your own. To humble you. So that you can rely on me. And then I will show you when you're in Babylon. I will show you, later as it goes on in the, uh, chapter 2, the woes. Look at what happens to a nation when it justifies itself on itself rather than on God. If you look specifically in verse 18, it says, What prophet is an idol when it, its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, Arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver. And there is no breath at all in it. You see? You make something and you think it can teach you. How can something that you've made yourself teach you more than what you know? It's just impossible. It doesn't work that way. You are worshipping the creation and not worshipping the creator. You will only understand and be able to fully appreciate the creation when you can worship the Creator. Oh, those foolish Babylonians. Finding hope in something made of themselves. I'm so glad I don't look at anything outside of God to justify my existence. I'm glad I don't look at my work or how my family is, or my house, or whatever it might be, to make it look like I have arrived. I don't wanna, and this is going to happen for women and men, but I think It's a Wonderful Life speaks to men pretty powerfully. And I think this passage speaks to men. I want to speak to you guys. Speaking to women too, but I want to speak to guys. We find our worth and our justification so easily in what we can accomplish. 
And we live in a culture that esteems men that are able to do those things. But have you ever seen the heart of those men that have esteemed that and what the men they do value? I love reading articles about those kind of guys. Christian Bale, right? Man, he's arrived, hasn't he? Man, he's a Hollywood actor. He's won Oscars. He's in a new big movie. Christian Bale. Now he's got an article in the Wall Street Journal. What is he going to say about how to arrive at life? Well, the, Christian Bale doesn't talk about his family, so the interviewer said, well, tell me about your friends. Tell me about your friends, Christian Bale. This is what Christian Bale says. You know who my friends are? You know who I love? I love losers. I love losers. I hate the title losers, but I tell you, I love losers because people who have failed are so much more fun. Because the people that base their existence on their pride and what they've done in Hollywood are jerks. And these people that are quote-unquote losers are the ones that show me what really matters in life. Whoa! Can Christian Bale make an observation about the reality of how God has made it? Yes, I think he has. And the observation is this. We can find joy and contentment when we find our value not in what we do ourselves, but instead what the Creator has done for us. Because when the source becomes ourselves, it will lead us to nothing but a noose on our necks and destroy us. Oh, man. You want to know? This is, this is the biggest pushback I'm going to get from the culture. Okay? This, what I just said, is sacrilegious for our culture. And I, I, I would hope people would throw stones at this message. Sacrilegious. To say that something outside of myself, something, of, something I can do my, out of my self-actualization, can actually bring me worth and value? How dare you say that? How you dare you say there is something out of what I can do myself to bring me value and justify my existence? That is the gospel. Okay, now transfer to Habakkuk. He's saying the same thing. God, you're saying Israel can have value and worth and justification when we have no more land? When we've been taken out of the land where another nation that's more powerful comes and takes us, that the temple is is gone, where we have been removed, where we're taken out by hooks in our mouth and dragged us to another place, and you say we still have ex- a worth and value and justification? And God says, yes, because what justifies your life is trust in me and nothing else. Not the land, nothing. It is in me. This passage is so good because there's sections in this passage, verse verse 14 and then verse 20, that God breaks through what is happening around 
to show his power in horrible circumstances. Verse 14 is so rich. Here it is, all these woes and all these bad things around. And then God says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I give personal testimony sometimes, but I remember sitting and I was reading, it was before this church got going. Not, man, I stress easily. And I remember I was sitting and reading the word and, you know, this is moments that God hits you. Verse 14, you know, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge and the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And I remember sitting by a brook. We were at a bed and breakfast, kind of relaxing, Aaron and I, before this pickup of the church. And I remember this buck walked over the water right in front of me. Right? The hunters would appreciate that, right? So, not a hunter, but it's a buck right in front of me. And that is when the woes are around us. God says to us and speaks to us and he says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I am breaking through, says the Lord. I want to show you, Dan, that your justification, your value is not based on your work, is not based on what you accomplish. It is found in me. If you would just rest in me, then you will actually be able to rest in what I bring you, whatever it might be. Where do you find your justification in life? Where do you find it? For the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. John 2.19, Jesus says, you will destroy the temple, but in three days it will rise again. Who's he talking about? The physical temple? No, he's talking about himself. Jesus is that temple. In Revelation 21.22, it says, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. God says to Habakkuk, hope will come, Habakkuk. It will come through my son, who Habakkuk has not even seen, who we have, and will come at the last days where we will worship the Lamb and the Lord God Almighty. At the end of It's a Wonderful Life, George goes back and sees that, you know, uh, people um, are all celebrating his house. He wants to come back. Oh, it's it's good. I'm here. And then um, all the money he needed to pay, they they bring all the money himself and give it to him. And then he opens a book and inside is inscribed in the book. It says this. Dear George, remember, no man is a failure who has friends. You know, there's also one that has come and paid our debt, has redeemed us, and has said, you are no failure, because when you trust in me, you shall be justified. That is the gospel. Do you trust in him? 
for your justification. Because trusting in anything else will be a noose on your neck and lead to nothing but death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are our hope. 